Please pray with me. Lord, we do ask that you would prepare us for your coming, that you would find in us when you return a mansion built for yourself. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Well, once again, we're here at the first Sunday of Advent, and if you're, you know, in the liturgical tradition, you can't miss it. There's no mistaking Advent for Christmas, right? I saw a, a meme on Facebook this week. It said, uh, forget the war on Christmas. How about the war on Advent? And I thought, huh, yeah. Yeah, there's something to that, right? When we jump right to Christmas, we're missing the point, right? We're missing the point of an entire season. It's a short season. But um, we are remiss if we miss the time of preparation. And of course, we as Americans don't like preparation. We don't like waiting. We want it now. We have the, uh, you know, uh, on-demand delivery system, right? Things are here now. My Amazon Prime account uh, is supposed to deliver the next day on things. And when it doesn't, I'm ticked off. Does it really matter that I need, that I ordered those suction cups to hang Christmas lights and, and that they come yesterday or they come today? No, not really, right? But Advent is a time of waiting. And here we are once again waiting for the Lord. And that's a good thing. It's something to be chewed on, something to meditate on, right? We're at the beginning of the year for the Christian year. Father Joshua actually texted me this morning, Happy New Year! Because as Christians, we can look at Advent as the beginning of yet another year together as God's people. And we go through the year, right? From the promise of God sending His Son at Advent to Jesus being born on earth at Christmas, to Jesus being baptized and starting his ministry during Epiphany, to Jesus fasting and being rejected by people during Lent, to Jesus' persecution, death, and burial at Holy Week, to Jesus' glorious resurrection, conquering death through Easter and through the season of Easter, all the way to Jesus' ascending to God's right hand at the Feast of ascension. And then finally, Jesus sending the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to give us the grace and the power that we need to be the church. And the rest of the church year from June Pentecost onward is us living together empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what the church is to do in Jesus' name. Finally, last week, we celebrated Christ the King. The fact that we do what the Holy Spirit asks us to do and empowers us to do, and yet we see the world is still not in accordance with God's will. And we look at ourselves and we see that even we are not in accordance with God's will, right? Even though we have the Holy Spirit. And so we come all the way back to Advent, right? And we say, as we prayed together at the beginning of the service, Lord, Give us grace to cast the works of darkness away and put on the armor of light. And we start the process all over again. 
Why do we do that every year? Because we need it. Because we need it. We desperately need it. And today, we start again. Today, as we're going through the canticle, it's interesting because I see a lot of congruity between the Song of Moses, the Cantimus Domino, which we said together, and the story of the Christian, the story of you and I. You see, the Cantimus Domino is not just about Moses. It's not just Moses' song. It's not just the Hebrew people's song. But it's our song too. So I invite you to open with me to page 84 in the Book of Common Prayer. I'm sorry, that's wrong. Page 83 in the Book of Common Prayer. Number 5, the Cantimus Domino, the Song of Moses. Or if you'd like to look at it in your Bibles, it's from Exodus chapter 15. 1 through 6, 11 through 13, 17 through 18. This is a song that Moses sings. But it's a song that Moses sings as an example to the Hebrew people who had been brutally enslaved, who had gone through hell in Egypt, having to make bricks out of straw, right? And then no straw, right? And who had been pushed to the point that Pharaoh's regime was killing their children so that they wouldn't survive as a people. Let's remember what was going on in Exodus and why Moses is singing this. So that was the state of God's people before God called Moses, right? And it's the song of the Christian too. Because while we're not physically enslaved, while our children are not being taken from us and killed, we are spiritually enslaved prior to knowing Christ. We're spiritually enslaved prior to that. And, and our works, our, our, our families, our actions, all of those things are taken from us. Right? Spiritually speaking, they're of no value, right? Without Jesus Christ. All of our efforts outside of Christ are nothing. Eternally, they're nothing. And so here as we look at the canticle, I want to point out four things. Number one, who is this Lord that is worth singing to? I want to ask you. Who is this Lord that's worth singing to? Number two, what has the Lord done? What's the Lord done for his people? Number three, who is the Lord with whom no God compares? And number four, who is the Lord whose governing will be eternal, will be the last line, as it were, in all life. That's what today's canticle is about. You can split it up, actually, if you look at it with me. Um, and I just, you know, if you're one that marks these things, verses 1 through 3 answers the first question. Verses 4 through 6 answers the second. Verses 7 through 12 
answers the third. And the last line answers the, answers the fourth. Who is this God? Well, the gospel gives us insight into this canticle. Today's gospel from Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, begins at the end, doesn't it? It's a strange reading for Advent if you're trying to think about Advent as the cheery pre-Christmas season, isn't it? You're kind of like, whoa, Jesus is coming back and not everybody's pleased. Look with me at, the, at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus is here speaking about the end time, what some people call the apocalypse. You've heard that term before, perhaps? Most of the time, it's portrayed as something scary. And while it is something to behold and something awesome, to be sure, for those who are part of God's chosen people, it's not something scary. It's not something scary. It's something reassuring. It's the culmination of the canticle that we said. The end of all things in God. You see, we will see Jesus returning as the dread warrior in battle. Gone or subsumed, perhaps is a better way to say, is the Jesus who restrains himself for the sake of being the suffering servant. For that's no longer his task. Now his task is to rule eternally. To subdue all his enemies under his feet. And that's really a joyful thing when you think about it. You see, returning is Jesus the Lord, high and lifted up, as the canticle says. The Lord, the mighty warrior, the Lord who hurls his enemies into the fathomless deep, the Lord who with the command of his hand swallows up people. Look at verse 30 and 31. Then will appear the in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus is talking here about this second coming, about himself. Notice, many will mourn. Why? Because they've rejected him. Because they've rejected him. And now they see the truth. But notice also that he'll send his angels to gather the elect from every nation. This mighty warrior is not terrifying for them. Why? Because they've put their trust in the God to whom no one else compares. And who is that God? We, we continue on with our question. What has he done? Well, our epistle reading today, St. Paul writes to the church in Rome, 
and he talks about the hour coming, right? Look at Romans 13, 11 and 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's where the collect of the day comes from, by the way, that verse. What does it mean? That salvation is nearer now than when they first believed. What the Apostle Paul means is that they are now, we are now, closer to Jesus' return here on earth than when we first believed. That's a truth. No matter what, we're closer now to Jesus' return than when we first believed. And while that will make those who rejected Jesus full of anxiety and mourn when they see the truth, it makes those who have believed excited, rejoicing. Why? Because the, the Master is finally coming back to set things right. Again, we turn to the canticle, which gives voice to this joy, right? The same God who's fearsome and feared by his enemies is dearly loved and dearly loving to his people. He's exalted and praised by his people. He is the Lord to whom no other Lord, no other God compares. Look with me at the part where we begin addressing God in the first person. Because it's actually quite remarkable. You see where it starts? Your right hand. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in might. Your right hand, O Lord, has overthrown the enemy. You, who can be compared with you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, awesome in renown, and worker of wonders? You stretched forth your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. With your constant love, you led the people. You redeemed. You brought them in safety to your holy dwelling. You will bring them in and plant them on the mount of your possession, the resting place you have made for yourself, O Lord, the sanctuary, O Lord, that, that your hand has established. That final section, that third section of the canticle. It's amazing that Moses addresses God so boldly, isn't it? When you think about it, he's addressing him familiarly, right? You, not the Lord, but you, he says. How can he say that? How can he say that? Because God chooses Moses. Because God has chosen Israel. Because God has chosen the church. Because God has chosen you and I. So we can say that. You'll remember back in Genesis 17, 7, God made this promise, right? To Abraham. He said, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Now, does an everlasting covenant ever end? 
No. An everlasting covenant. To be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So God promises to Abraham. And as a reminder of the covenant to Moses who sings this song way back in Exodus chapter 3 verse 7. We read this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He remembers his covenant with Moses. Therefore, Moses and the Hebrews can say this of their God. They can say, as we said earlier here, God is my strength and my refuge. He has become my Savior. He is my God, the God of my people. But we Christians can join with the Hebrews in saying this too, right? Why do we sing a song of Moses? Because this is our song as well. We too can say, God is my strength and my refuge. He has become my Savior. He's my God. God of my people, the church. We as Christians sing this and say this for the very reason that we celebrate Advent and Christmas is behind our singing and saying this. Right? Remember Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, which we'll read later on this year, the promise that she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has become one of us and has been with us. The Savior of the world, the second person of the Trinity, has been given by the Father to us to save us as His people. Jesus came as a little baby, died on the cross, died that death that you and I deserved for our wickedness, and rose again, ascended into heaven, and promises to return again. So with the Hebrews we can say, as this line in this canticle says, with your constant love, you led the people you redeemed. You brought them in safety to your holy dwelling. Do you see? This canticle is originally written for the Hebrews coming out of the slavery of Egypt, but it's also written for every person coming out of the slavery of sin, coming out of the slavery of those things that oppress us and entrap us and keep us from seeing God more fully from blocking our access to God. God has sent Jesus to make that way clear. And so for those who are part of His people, His return is good news. For God's chosen people, the apocalypse, the end of time, is a good thing, just as Isaiah describes it in his prophecy. It shall come to pass, says Isaiah in verse 2 of chapter 2, 
In the latter days, that the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." What's being said there? It's looking, again, Isaiah is looking past Jesus to the end time, to Jesus' return, to the culmination of all things. And no God can compare with that. No God can compare with that. No God can compare with the God who offers that and has sent His Son to be our Savior. Jesus offers Himself as our strength and our refuge in the meantime, too. This isn't all about the end times. It's also about our life here in this world, right? Notice, that's what St. Paul addresses in Romans 10, where he says, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him, that is Jesus, will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an offer for everyone. And especially during this Advent and Christmas season, it's important that we as Christians remember the main thing. What's the main thing? As fun as the season is, we're preparing for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're already part of the people of God who are being saved, as St. Paul tells us in the epistle, there's three things that he outlines. How do we prepare for the return of the king? To not be a people controlled by debt. Verse 8. How many of us can say we're not a people controlled by debt, owing nothing to anyone? I'm not saying that all debt is bad, notice. Some of it's necessary. But are we controlled by it? Number two, to keep the commandments which can be encapsulated in loving one's neighbor as oneself. That's the second main point. And number three, to not be ruled by our bodily passions. Whether it's food, sex, lust after money or power, whatever our passions are, are we ruled by them or have we subdued them to the rule of Jesus Christ? I can say very honestly that um, that's an ongoing process in my life. I try, I fail, I come back and ask for grace to try some more that I might be and look like Christ. But look how Paul ends that passage with me. He says, verse 13, Let us walk properly as in the day daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the answer? Not just to resist the things of the enemy, but to put on Christ. Not to be controlled by money and debt. To keep the commandments 
to be, not to be ruled by our passions. Those are the three main things. And the answer to them is to put on Christ. Now that's not some spiritual, ethereal thing, right? That's, some, that's a practical thing. That means I put Christ over my finances, not my wants, not what I can't afford that I put on the credit card. It means that I put Christ in command of my actions with myself and my neighbor. It means that I put Christ in control of my passions. Right? It's a hard thing. But that's what St. Paul calls us and to. And the end result is a wonderful thing. For as the last article, as the last part, a line of the canticle says, when the Lord shall come to reign forever and ever, what will he find in us? What will he find in us? Will he find wickedness, evil? Will he find people that worship those other things and are controlled by them? Or will he find servants that desire him and anticipate his return with great joy? Friends, anticipate that return. For what the heck does it mean for us to be Christians and say that we, you know, all this falderall and we, we pray and we go around in a circle with incense and we have an advent calendar. If, if we're just going through that stuff and our lives look no different than our neighbors, right? Are we really preparing to retur- for the return of Christ as king? Or are we saying, well, you know, the return of Christ and king, uh, as king might happen someday, but I don't really believe in that. Because what we say and what we do should reflect that reality rather than the reality of here on earth with our culture's priorities, with our sinful passions, with those things that ultimately entrap us. What we do matters. Not in the sense that it justifies us before God, but in the sense that it proves our obedience to Him. And so St. Paul calls us here to an obedience as we come and look forward to the return of the King. So as we go forth from this place, ask yourself, have I put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior? An easy line, but have you done it? Have you done it today? Do you constantly put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you have, you have nothing to fear at his return. But St. Paul would say, does your calendar, does your bank account, does your journal, does your browser history reflect that reality? Do you take his return seriously? Where are you spending your time? Finally, is there someone, ask yourself, is there someone whom I dearly love or perhaps only interact with on occasion that if Jesus returned right now, you would say, I wish I'd shared the good news of Jesus Christ with that person? I wish that they knew I wish that they were part of God's chosen people. 
embrace Advent with that kind of waiting, but that kind of urgency. For he is coming back. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you give us this gift of salvation and redemption, Lord, that you are our mighty warrior in battle, that you have hurled all things that oppress us into the sea and they sink like a rock. We ask, Father, that we would push into that reality, that we would anticipate your coming and that our faith would be strengthened by it. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.